This is the Beyond Belief Sobriety Podcast, where we explore topics of interest to people who are seeking or who have found a secular path to recovery from addictions of all kinds. Hello, and thank you for clicking the link or pressing the button or whatever it was that you had to do to download this episode. I'm honored that you would spend your valuable time to listen to this podcast. Today's episode is all about computer gaming addiction, and you will also learn a little history of the fellowship Computer Gaming Addicts Anonymous. But before we get into that, I would like to announce a new sponsor for the podcast. It's a company called Soberlink. They've designed an advanced alcohol monitoring system that's used in treatment centers and sober living facilities or simply by people who want or need some additional accountability as they begin their recovery journey. So at the beginning of each episode from here on out, you will hear me talk about Soberlink and it will go something like this. If you're seeking a tangible way to maintain accountability and prove sobriety to loved ones, you have to try Soberlink. If you haven't heard of Soberlink, they've created a remote alcohol monitoring system that revolutionizes the way people document sobriety. The system includes a breathalyzer and uses artificial intelligence to display your test results in a calendar format, helping you analyze your habits and prove to yourself and others that you are, in fact, not drinking. It even has real-time results, facial recognition and tamper detection, so no one will question the validity of your results. Soberlink and I have created a guide called five tools and strategies for those on a secular path to recovery that you can find at soberlink.com slash bbs if you're ready to take the next step in your recovery journey mention the beyond belief sobriety podcast when ordering soberlink and you'll receive 50 dollars off their device and now for episode 248 computer gaming addiction with scott J. I have a guest today. His name is Scott J, and he is here to talk about computer gaming addiction. He is a member of Computer Gaming. I'll let him CG Computer Gamers Anonymous. I'll let you tell us, Scott. What is the name of the organization? Yeah, hi, John. Thanks. Yeah, uh, the name of it is Computer Gaming Addicts Anonymous. It's it's a fellowship for people struggling with any type of gaming whether it's on computer, video, uh, you know, video console or uh, mobile gaming. And you wrote me and you mentioned that you've been involved in this for, for about, I think about nine years or so, and that you found that it was almost secular in nature from the beginning. So they've never really had this issue like they, like you might have an AA where you have people who have a need for secular meetings. So is that, is that what you have found? Yeah. And, and part of that was me bringing my own experience from AA, because um, just leading up to those years, I had um, I'd still been active in AA, even though I had been spinning out of control with gaming addiction, um, and had had some run into some serious trouble trying to sponsor people who were not monotheistic and were having trouble with AA's religious language. Um, so when when the small group that started Computer Gaming Addicts Anonymous. Uh, was coming together, uh, easily half of us were not monotheistic, uh, you know, and and probably half of us didn't have experience with other 12-step fellowships. So, so in in a lot of ways we were, you know, starting, starting fresh. Um, Also up to that point, we had 
before we really formalized things, we had 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 a lot of trouble from not from being very loose with the twelve traditions that are usually used in fellowship. So, um, so that was also part of the picture there that we were firmly committed to following the twelve traditions because of the troubles that we had had up to that point, and following and following the twelve traditions included not promoting any kind of religious beliefs. Yes, um, that's you're absolutely right. Yeah, it sure does. So can we start, if you don't mind, uh, could you share your story of computer gaming and how, how it became a problem and, and how you got into recovery? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so I first found re- recovery in Alcoholics Anonymous because my first my first drug of choice was alcohol. Um, I, I, I drank a lot as a teenager and in college, and it spun out of control to the point where um, I started looking for help around age 22. And I got into AA, and it it was a good fit for me at the time. Um, and I got sober. My life got a whole lot better as I was working the program. You know, I had a sponsor, was working the steps, was going to lots of meetings. Um, and then, you know, around the six, seven-year point, I started, my life really filled up with other things. So I stopped going to as many meetings, stopped being as active, and um started playing more video games and they weren't a problem at first, but, but the less that I took care of myself as far as a recovery program goes, um, the more that I seem to rely on games to deal with stress, to deal with any difficult emotions that were coming up to like escape from, um, difficult things that were going on in my life. And right from the start, I started to see some of the red flags from my alcoholism showing up with my gaming behavior. Uh, you know, and that goes from being obsessive about it, like, you know, like looking forward to the next time I was going to be able to game to the amount of time that I was spending on it going up and up to the point where I was feeling embarrassed about how much time I was spending. So I was actually hiding it from people sometimes or lying, you know, like if I got together with someone and they asked, you know, how was your afternoon? And I had been gaming for most of the afternoon. I would make up something else. You know, I'd <laughs> say I was doing something else because I was a little embarrassed about how much time I was spending gaming. Uh, so I was definitely seeing some of the red flags. But at this point, this was in 2006, 2007, I had I had never heard the phrase gaming addiction before. I didn't know it was a thing. I didn't I wasn't worried about it. I, I considered it a substitute behavior, like I talk about in AA. You know, you can pick up these substitute behaviors instead of drinking. And so I just thought it was a substitute that was, you know, passing phase. It was a bad habit, but it wasn't going to be a big deal when I decided to, to game less. It would be fine uh, because I had had other substitutes in my life, you know, other things that temporarily I, I was obsessed with. And what they were just bad habits that were passing phases and I got over them. But the thing that happened with the gaming was, um, like my alcoholism, it kept ramping up over time. It kept, um, I kept spending more and more time on it. It kept pushing other things out of my life uh, to the point where I was really isolating from people most of the time. I was gaming late in the night, not getting anywhere near the sleep that I needed. Um, and I was, uh, yeah, my relationships were not doing as well. Uh, things were not going as well at work. I was actually had actually started gaming during work hours, and that is not even something that I had done in my drinking days. You know, I never I never got drunk at work, but I was gaming during work hours. Um, and a number of times, I decided to cut back on my gaming, but um, but like with my alcoholism, the amount of stress that all these problems were causing 
just made me feel more obsessive and more compulsive about the gaming. So it was definitely a downward spiral the same way that my drinking had been. Interesting. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. Like any addiction, the, you're, you're feeling the shame of, of engaging in it. You're, you're feeling stress from the problems that it brings on and the stress that you're feeling is just, is, is driving you to even more gaming to escape that. But it makes perfect sense to me. You know, I once talked to a doctor who um, described addiction as not really being an addiction to a particular substance or behavior, but it's really an addiction to dopamine. It's it's whatever um, substance or behavior causes that spike of dopamine in our brain that makes us think that we need more and more of whatever that is, and it gets it just really spins out of control to where we it just it just takes over. You know that part of our brain is just demanding more and more of that. You mentioned also that reason that, that you were gaming had to do with this need for escape. I can relate to that with my drinking as well. I just needed to kind of blot out my mind. But I, I wonder, Scott, if you have noticed since COVID an increase in, in people coming, seeking help for problem gaming, my thinking being that there, there's a lot to, more to escape from nowadays. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The, um, yeah, definitely. Within a few months of the COVID lockdown starting, there were a lot more people coming to CGAA meetings, uh, easily twice as many. It might have been three times as many. Our membership doubled or tripled during during the first year of COVID. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah, you know, there are a number of factors there. Um, you know, I think I think people who were already on, you know, on their way. <laughs> down the down the slope, the downward slope of addiction, the progression of addiction, um, that the, the lockdowns might have sped things up. You got more time at home. More time at home, more time in front of the computer, more social isolation away from other people, or you know, not just not going out and being as active physically or, or mentally or socially as as normal. Um, that people were turning to to games a lot more, and that probably sped things up for some people. And maybe being locked, <laughs> locked at home with a, a spouse or a, a girlfriend who suddenly saw this problem getting worse than it ever had been might have, you know, driven, definitely seemed to ins- inspire some people to come seek help in our meetings. Sure. Yeah. I mean, oftentimes we're the last ones to want to recognize or admit the problem. But once someone kind of calls us on it, and it's out there in the open, it can be a pretty frightening experience. And it's like, yeah, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready to, to seek help. So can you describe um, what the recovery process is like? The recovery process is the way I see it is the same as for any other addiction. I mean, I don't, let's see, I've been involved in Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous, so I haven't really been involved in other fellowships, but um, they they all have the same feel to me um you know it's definitely an, an abstinence-based fellowship unlike maybe overeaters anonymous mm-hmm. i saw that on the website it's like one of the one of the questions was um do i have to stop complete? yeah it's, it's complete abstinence that means no gaming right yes so you know if um so yeah we focus on abstinence um we are it's a mutual support fellowship you know where we we can do together what we can't do separately. So we rely on talking to each other uh, on the phone frequently and going to meetings 
as much as we can. Um, and, you know, we, and it's a, you know, there's no rules, no set program, like with other recovery fellowships, that the idea is to take the suggestions of people who haven't already achieved the results that you'd like to see for yourself. So, um, so yeah, it's, you know, I, I don't really see the program being any different than it is in AA. I was also reading through the website a little bit and I think in the frequently asked questions section anyway. And, you know, one of the questions was, you know, is this a 12 step fellowship? Do you have to work to 12 steps? And I think the appropriate answer was, you know, it's really up to you. It's not any, it's not a requirement. And uh, I did read through the 12 steps that are, that are listed on the, on the site. And they are in fact much more secular than uh, what you would find in AA, for example, there's no no mention of God at all. You don't see the G word anywhere in those steps. Yeah, yeah, I was a part of the the process, the group that that came up with the wording of our steps, and we, you know, we, inclusivity um, was one of our top goals. We wanted, you know, this is an international <laughs> fellowship, and mostly mostly meets online. We want uh, Buddhists and Hindus and Taoists and people of all spiritualities of religions or lack of religion to feel every bit as welcome as uh, you know a Christian does in our fellowship. So we yeah we we tried to keep the steps as much as we could the way that they were um, because of people's familiarity familiarity with the wording uh, and the way that they have been for so long, but we found that there were actually quite a few places that we needed to make changes for <laughs> it to be, to be really inclusive. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a really good point that the, one thing that I've learned over the years is there are people who have a deep faith and are, are, you know, church going religious people, but they don't necessarily need to have it as part of their recovery either because they don't, they like to keep that part of their life separate. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's yeah. That's how it has been for me and a lot of other people in CGAA. So, what is what has your experience been like uh, since you've you've been involved with uh, CGAA? Um, I I was pretty skeptical about it at first. Like, uh, I remember in AA, I'd heard of online AA meetings, um, and was you know my immediate reaction was like that there's no way it could be anywhere near as good as face-to-face meetings because there's just so much magic that seems to happen just being surrounded by other people and seeing their expressions and hearing them talk right, right next to you and, and, you know, shaking hands or or exchanging hugs or all that stuff. It just seemed like online was just going to be a pale uh, reflection of of an actual face-to-face meeting. But, you know, if, because there, there were only, in the early years that I was going, there were only between, I'd say between 40 and 100 people in the entire fellowship worldwide were pretty well spread out at that time. You know, there was people, hardly anyone could get together face to face with another person sure. in the fellowship. So I had no on. idea this was so new. So exactly when did this start? You know, it's hard to put an exact date on it because there are there was a forum that was that was available for for any kind of people having any kinds of problems with uh, gaming, whether that's family of compulsive gamers or compulsive gamers themselves. And so people in our fellowship started meeting there early on. Um, but it, it took until about 2010 before we started having um, daily online meetings. So I kind of consider that to be 
the starting point was when we started having the daily meetings. Um, yeah, and because, like I mentioned, the problems we're having with not following certain traditions, um, that was causing our membership to go through cycles of growth and then collapse, and then growth and then collapse over and over again. Um, so it was only when we really formally organized things ourselves and chose a name, made our own website, and started strictly following the 12 traditions that are uh, size that since then has been uh, steadily growing. So I'd, I'd say we're probably around six to 700 people right now. What experiences did you have that solidified in your thinking that you really needed to apply the 12 traditions to this fellowship? Uh, I think I think we our group had experience with breaking almost all of the traditions <laughs> and got to see got to see firsthand <laughs> that's kind of handy isn't it I was, <laughs> if you want to know if you need a tradition you should break it i guess right because <laughs> yeah before that point you know i'd been in aa for um you know 13 or 14 years at that point and the traditions felt largely theoretical to me because <laughs> yeah. i had never been a part of any group that was breaking them other you know other than the other than the specific, you know, including specific religion, uh, religious language in the meetings. But, but other than that, you know, groups really firmly stuck to those traditions. Yeah. They take them pretty seriously in AA. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So we were not formally organized ourselves. We were relying on this website to meet with each other. And the website was owned by someone who wasn't in our fellowship, uh, and, um, you know, and, and this, the owner had all sorts of other ideas for what what uh, she wanted to go to happen on her website. So there were news articles on there that were putting controversial ideas on there that really had nothing to do with us. There was there were rules being handed down on how the website could be used sometimes, which is, you know, we're not uh, with the traditions. You don't have a hierarchy. You don't have these strict rules. Um, you know, people are being appointed positions of power rather than being elected by right. conscience. So that was an issue too. Um, and then when we had a couple members doing things that the owner of the website didn't like, she uh, banned them from the website. And that's also. <laughs> IT people can be a problem. And any. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we had an experience with almost all of the 12 traditions being broken and got to see what that was like. And it was a major commitment of ours in our early days of uh, in, around 2014 of, um, really putting the traditions to work. I can relate to those issues, especially with the website. You know, the, the whoever manages the website for um, a fellowship like this, they have so much power because they can just decide, I'm going to put this on, I'm going to put that on, whatever. And, you know, I can see very easily how in the early days uh, that could be a problem. We did this, we had the same issues in secular um, AA. You know, we, we put up a secular AA website and the the board had sometimes a difficult time controlling what was put on that site. So, <laughs> so that's interesting that uh, that you get that you adopted those. And what was the process behind that? Did you all did you have a meeting? Was there a vote? Um, had that go? Had had that go? And did you re- have to rewrite any of them? Oh, it was pretty straightforward and didn't take much time. We we had. We've been gaining a lot of familiarity with the 12 traditions. I mean, I, I had a lot of familiarity with them from my time in AA, and I, so I was talking about them a lot with other people, and people were definitely getting on board with them. So, when, yeah, we our business meeting group got together and decided, okay, we're going to stick by the traditions. 
uh, it was a unanimous vote. It wasn't that big a process. When we did handle the wording of writing the traditions to put them on the website, we did reword uh, tradition two, which uh, in AA says that the you know uh, God. The, Bill Wilson's God is, is the the power over the the whole fellowship. Um, <laughs> but um, so, but that was a very simple change. We just said that the group conscience is the is the ultimate authority. Because that's how it actually works. It truly anyway, is that's how, how it, <laughs> that's how it works in AA and in, in all yeah. the fellowships. So we just every once in a while someone would give um, a, a secular AA meeting a hard time because they say there's no way you can be following the traditions because you don't believe in a higher power guiding the group conscience or whatever. And it's but the the tradition does say um, may a higher I can't remember exact wording but there is the word may in there and 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 so for us no he just doesn't the higher power you know god has nothing to do with our group conscience it's just us anyway but that being that being said that that is pretty interesting that you had had to go through that uh, just like AA itself when it started out you know uh, and and they had to create some kind of guidelines to go by based upon their experience just like what just like what you went through I do have a question for you that I, that I'm kind of curious about. I'm just kind of browsing through the website. I noticed that in addition to compulsive computer gaming, another problem that people have is just addiction to screens, to internet use. And I think, I think it said on the website that people that have this issue are welcome. Can you talk a little bit about that um, aspect of computer gaming? Is, is that, is that addiction kind of the same or is it different? And, and, and how does all that work together? Yeah, I, I believe that internet and technology addiction is, is a real thing. Yeah, I do too. Um, they are separate things. We have, I'd say a small percentage. I'm not sure. Maybe 10%, maybe 20% seem to have um, an actual addiction to internet and technology. So there is a separate fellowship for that. That's called Internet and Oh, Technology. I did not know that. Oh, Internet and Technology Addicts Anonymous (ITAA), and they they also exploded during the two COVID years. I they bet from having a couple meetings a week to um, uh, I don't know, fifty meetings a week. Oh or, man, or something like that How in several different languages. Um, yeah, so we have notes about that on the website to let people who are okay. That. I was wondering other fellowship exists for them How but it can actually be a, a pretty tricky thing for our members early on when we first stopped playing video games just because all of us <laughs> seem to take that obsessive energy that we used to have towards video games and still be magnetically drawn to the computer or technology and the internet and can spend you know start spending way too much time doing other things on the on the computer so it can be very hard to decide during those early months whether or not this we're just temporarily using it as a crutch to get over our gaming addiction or if it's an actual second addiction. Yeah. And what's so insidious about it is first of all, we all walk around with our iPhones, whatever, and social media sites like Facebook, they are designed to addict you <laughs> they were assigned to they're designed to make us want to you know to look at it every so often and you know and, and i find myself sometimes uh uh i i actually i took it off my phone for a little while and i thought Man, this, i feel so much better not having this on my phone 
I'm not looking at it all the time. Then all of a sudden I decide, okay, I'm going to put it back on my phone. And it's really weird how, you know, you'll just kind of like browse through for no reason. I was like, what am I doing? What am I, what am I? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah. So I, I can definitely see, and I can definitely also see how, because of COVID, this COVID thing is so weird because it, it forces, it, it did me anyway, it forced me to spend more time. I mean, my connection with people was all online. So I'm working from home, you know, any meetings I go to, you know, AA meetings or something are going to be online. You know, everyone socializing, everything is right there in front of, in front of the computer and it's just, I don't know, it's just too, I think it could be so easy just to be drawn into, just to be sucked into, and then not pay attention to your life and what's, what's really important. Right, yeah. Yeah, that's, I think that's been happening for a lot of people lately. I'm sure that's why the, the number of meetings in, in ITAA exploded during the past couple of years. So... How would you describe an addiction to computer gaming? And is there any type of game that is more that seems to be more addictive? Like, would it be games that where you have more interaction with other players, or, or does that even matter? Yeah, those things matter for some people. Um, yeah, there's. I mean, in my mind, um, I, I cannot play any type of video game, no matter how simple. You know. It, 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 and this might not seem obvious at first, and it didn't to me. You know, I thought because I was spending some time playing card games and board games face to face with people after I stopped gaming as a way to play games, and they weren't triggering to me at all. I was having fun doing them, and it just started occurring to me. It was just like, how much difference is there really between playing it on a computer with real people or playing it face to face? And so, I did relapse a bunch of times in my first couple of years around this fellowship, and. Uh, and found out there's a very large difference. <laughs> like when I when I played on the computer, it just it, it just fed energy to the gaming addiction where I would want more and more. The obsession would grow larger, and uh, I'd be filling more and my more of my time with it. Um, it just seemed to trigger the whole you know obsession cycle. Uh, and at some point, I would be gaming so much, like why am I playing this stupid simple card game when I could be playing my game of choice? That is really, you know, what I want. And and I would break my um, my promise to myself not to play that game and end up downloading it again and playing it again. So I mean, I had trouble with all types of games, but but there are games that are far more problematic than others. There are principles that um, psychologists learned about when studying gambling, for for example things that really hook people and that cause things that cause gambling addiction. And that information was used to um, create certain elements of video games to make them more compelling. Um, Yeah. So, so those features are there, you know, I don't know if you've heard of this before, but it, it has something to do with uh, like randomness, you know, hitting a jackpot in some sort of random way can be highly compelling in the same way that gambling is. Um, so that, that's one aspect, definitely the, the connecting with other people is a big draw for a lot of other people, but also getting to be someone who you're normally not with other people too. feeling that freedom is a huge draw for a lot of people. Um, and then there's, you know, just these fantasy worlds are, are a great way to escape 
real life problems is another issue that really hooks people. Um, and then the sense of accomplishment. So many people feel like they're just spinning their wheels. They're on the rat, you know, they're in the rat cage on the on the spinning wheel in life, and they're not going anywhere. But in this game, there's like immediate, uh, you know, improvement, or, or you're leveling up, or you're accomplishing things, um, and you're improving. That is an enormous draw for a lot of people that can really hook people. What about uh, the family of of addict of gaming addicts? Is there a place for them? Yeah, there's. Um, it just started in January of this year. Um, well, formally started. There, there had been a small group of people being in touch with each other, but uh, yeah, the the website for that is called gamer anon dot org. Gamer anon, um, and it's it's been growing pretty quickly with uh, spouses and parents of compulsive gamers so the, there's help there's help for um for them too there's a lot of uh, good experience there that's being shared uh, especially among those people who are already familiar with the sort of thing from uh al-anon who are bringing that al-anon literature and ideas and principles to the group and, and helping out in that way yeah i imagine that you know, a family member would get frustrated if they if they see their um, loved one, be it a spouse or a child or whatever, you know, just hiding away in, in, in these games and not participating in the family. And they can't get them. They can't get them to stop. They can't. You know, there's nothing there's nothing you can do to get an addict to stop. You know, you know, it's it's good that they do that. You have that resource for for family members to to go and figure out. You know, and just relate with other people that are have that are going through that. I bet it could be heartbreaking, really, if you if you just kind of lose a loved one. Um, they're they're there in your house, but you you never you never really um, get to interact with them or see them, or you know, they're they're lost in a in another world. Yes, yeah, that's um, yeah. I've heard the story hundreds of times, so many times, where you know, um, a, a spouse, right, just hits their end with it, uh, can't take any more and gives an ultimatum. Just like, you know, you need to choose the video games or me and hear, to hear that story and to hear that, you know, gaming addicts, well, they must be gaming addicts because they're, they're choosing. They, they will flat out just say, I choose the video games. You can leave, you know, uh, it is just unbelievable. But this is one of the things that, um, that helped me out early on was hearing some of these stories from, family members because i i was i was very skeptical that gaming addiction was a real thing and i didn't want it to be a real thing i didn't want to have a second addiction. Mm, i know but but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but then hearing these stories and you know just hearing how serious it can, it can get and hearing that um the, the the tremendous amount of denial that uh people have when confronted about their gaming and the rational, crazy rationalizations that they'll have and the extreme anger that comes up um, when their ability to game is being threatened in any way. Um, those are all like super clear signs of addiction to me that helped me to see like, okay, this is the real deal. This is really addiction. Um, yeah. Well, you know, the World Health Organization has actually come as recognized now computer gaming as a disease, as a, as a as a problematic behavior. I don't know if you're aware of that. I just happened to do a little bit of googling before I talked with you, and I and I saw that. Uh, so I f- I found that interesting. So I you know, and I I'm sure there must be studies going on now about this. I never really stopped to think about 
you know, how new this is really relatively new anyway. Um, over the, I don't know, last what, 20 years or so, maybe 30 years. I don't know. Um, yeah. 20 to 25 years around there. Yeah. And, and as technology improves and access to, um, you know, faster connections and, uh, smaller devices that are, that are, that you can use almost anywhere, whatever, I'm sure that, um, it just becomes, you know, easier for people to follow this, but also it's just, uh, these things are designed to hook people, you know? <laughs> so it's just, um, that's, you know, it's just like, it's almost just like the cigarette industry almost. I mean, those cigarettes were designed to hook people. And so they had, they had a good deal. And, uh, you know, I think that, uh, the same thing kind of applies with, um, with these, with games as well. They're designed to hook people. Yeah. Yeah. They're definitely designed that way and they can affect, you know, a person doesn't have to have, the mental disorder of addiction really to be negatively affected by it. You know, lots of people who, you know, are not showing the clear symptoms of addiction can still have lots of problems just from sinking so many tens or dozens of hours per week into these games. What's the best way uh, if a person, so uh, let's start with this. How, how, what, what signs would you say? I mean, you've already mentioned a few, you know, spend a lot of time, um, on the game and avoiding other things, how can a person kind of recognize that there's, that they're having a problem. And then once they, they recognize that they do, um, where can they go for help? Yeah. How can people recognize that they're having a problem? Um, well, like, like I was just saying, you know, there's anybody can have a problem with games that are designed to, to really draw you in and hook you. So, um, so, Lots of people are having having that problem. Um, I think the way for someone to to know what kind of how serious the problem is and what kind of help they need is to try moderating for a while or try stopping for a while. Because if someone decides, okay, I'm going to find out how serious this is by stopping for a week, um, you know, someone who's an addict is going to feel miserable. You're going to have withdrawal symptoms, aren't you? Going to have withdrawal symptoms gonna feel really restless and irritable gonna even if intending to you know pour the extra time that you have this week into other projects we find that we can't you know just so scattered our motivation is low our energy is low um it's just hard to get ourselves to do anything else we feel impulsive about finding if not going back to games and finding some other escape on the computer watching videos or something like that um, and it's just a short matter of time before we're back at the games. Um, and that is a very different experience from lots of people who I've heard from who had problems with games, but they weren't addicted. Uh, it was just a bad habit for them. And when they take a break for a week, their experience is entirely different. I've heard so many of them say, I'm, I was able to get the sleep that I needed this week. I feel that my energy is better. I was able to accomplish so much more this week than I usually do. Um, and uh yeah so that's a huge difference uh, that, that's that, a huge difference yeah. and I, I suspect the same may be true for other types of addictions absolutely that, that while you're using this potentially addictive behavior it's hard to tell whether or not you actually have an addiction but when you try to get it under control or you try to stop for a while that's when the big sure. differences that's show a good up point. and also i think that once you begin thinking and questioning about whether or not you have a problem at that point, you should look into it. Yeah. 
you know, it's it's a good idea. It doesn't, it doesn't hurt to go to a meeting um, and say, you know, I don't know. I don't know if I have a problem or not. I, I, but it's on my mind. I'm thinking I might, you know? Right. Yeah. Going to a meeting and listening to people's stories and seeing how much you can really, is a good way to see um, whether or not (laughs) how severe your problem is, whether or not the support group like CGA can help. There's also a, um, a list of 20 questions, kind of self-test to um, which are designed really to get lots of yeses from people who are truly addicted and not not as many yeses from people who are not addicted but are having a problem for other reasons. Um, so yeah, taking that test and that's available on the CGA website can really help people figure out whether or not um, they need support. Um, but But you know, most people who try to stop will find themselves going back to it within, you know, one to three days. I mean, that's the thing that kept happening to me when I was trying to stop on my own was as soon as I hit a day or two of not gaming, I thought it's not a problem. Clearly (laughs) I've gamed for an entire day or two. I'm doing really well. Obviously I was making too big a deal of this. It wouldn't hurt for me to go back to gaming. Um, So it's really, really hard for someone who's truly addicted to even go a week without gaming. Yeah. Yeah, that makes that's I I can relate. I mean, it's just like it's just like any other any other addiction. Um, it just it's it's a behavior that is um, that is causing negative consequences. And despite those negative consequences, we're just not able to stop. And if we do stop, we begin to have those withdrawal symptoms where we need that we need to engage in that behavior or, or take that substance um, to to ease those those symptoms. Um, and it's a vicious cycle. Uh, then begins to impact your life, your your job, your family, your you know everything. It's just it's really an insidious thing, and it just it just sucks you in. I can just see how you know you can, it can start off very innocently, and next thing you know, it just spins out of control. You know, pretty quickly. So, is there anything here that we haven't covered that you that you would like to talk about? Yes, yeah, one one topic that's feels really important to me and, and that we've been touching on some and it's it's that um it's that through this experience i've learned that i, I have one mental condition that i call an addiction disorder uh and, and an addiction disorder can latch onto more than one type of behavior to try to get you know this escape or numbing out or a, a high or a thrill um and it's yeah it's become clear to me that almost everybody with an addiction disorder has more than one thing that'll do the trick for them, you know, and I've tried other things and they don't hook me. I, I gambled. I did a lot of gambling actually for, for a couple of years and, and I am not hooked on. Gambling. Isn't that funny? Um, I, yeah, I actually talked to a problem gambler not too long ago and I had the same experience. I got, I, I, there was a period of time where I was playing a lot of blackjack and spending a lot of time in the casinos and so forth. But what happened with me is I every time I played, I would lose. I mean, not every bam, 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 every single time. And I kind of got bored with it. I got bored with it. But I, there was a period of time when the highs and lows of the gambling had me. But but I, whatever reason, I got bored with it. And now it's the last, I have no interest whatsoever in going to a casino. Um, has no draw for me or appeal to me whatsoever. So it's like I realized, okay, so I guess I wasn't addicted. Or maybe I was at one time and then got over. I don't know. But um, yeah, very interesting. I'm sorry for interrupting you. But I do think that you you're right that the problem really isn't necessarily a particular substance, but the, the, but it's like, you're right. It's like I have this addictive 
thing in me. And because there, there's a number of things I can become addicted to, you know, food. Um, and, and I have, and I have gone through different, different addictions in my life, you know, and, um, it's, uh, it's something, but, um, I, I've been fortunate anyway, personally that I, since I've been sober, usually if I, if a behavior gets problematic, no, I will recognize it before I destroy everything. <laughs> anyway, yeah, yeah. if that's a if that's a positive, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I've gone through that with a number of behaviors where you know yeah. I really became obsessive and it was starting to cause a problem, but I recognized it and and stopped before it was anything like a full blown addiction. Well, yeah, to under to understand this idea of an addiction disorder clearly, I, I see it as being similar to obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, where, you know, there's only one diagnosis in the, at least in the American manual, you know, the diagnostic um, manual on disorders for OCD, even though it can manifest in different ways. It can manifest as like checking locks all the time or washing your hands all the time or checking on people all the time or counting everything or having some sort of ritual. You know, they don't have different diagnoses for all those different manifestations of OCD. And it's clear to me that uh, an addiction disorder should be treated the same way. There should be one diagnosis for it that, that has all the sort of things that we see in common with all different types of addictions. Um, and, and the fact that it can manifest with um, drinking and gambling for some people or, or sex and overeating for other people or video gaming and shopping for someone else, you know, uh, those manifestations, there shouldn't have to be a separate diagnosis in this manual for each of these different manifestations when it's obvious that it's all the same sort of condition that different people just, um, you know, play out differently depending on what gives them a high or, or release from anxiety that they're looking for. No, I totally agree. It, uh, it takes me back to what the doctor was telling me. It's not, it's, 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 it's what's going on in your brain. That's the problem. It's not necessarily the substance. And uh, I, I've always kind of latched onto that, but I, I know that addiction is much more complicated than, than that. Uh, but um, yeah, I, I, I really agree with what you said though. I think that the, I think there's, I think that's true. I really do. Anyway, thank you so much for, for coming on here. Um, it's been a pleasure to speak with you and to learn more about this. And I'm really glad that we finally were able to touch on this subject on this podcast. It's never, it has never come up before since I've been doing this for like, what, six years now? I, I just has never, I don't know. And so when you sent me that email, I thought, yes, yes, this is absolutely something we need to talk about. So um, hopefully this won't be the last time that we talk about it. And um, I'm going to try to learn more about, um, about this and, and, uh, and we'll make sure that when we post the, the um, podcast episode, we'll have links to the website, your website and, uh, and all the resources and so forth. So thank you, Scott. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you, John. I appreciate your interest in this topic and being able to talk to you. And that's another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you again, Soberlink. If you would like to support the podcast, there are a couple of ways you can do that. 
head on over to patreon.com slash beyond belief sobriety and you can become a patron for a small amount of money each month. And with that, you will get a little perk, which we can talk about on the next episode if you would like, or you can just go on over to the site and learn all about it. You can also become a member of our YouTube channel. Just go to uh, YouTube and search for Beyond Belief Sobriety and you can become a member there and also receive that little membership perk. Uh, if you just want to make a regular one-time contribution and don't really want to do the monthly thing, you can just go over to our website, beyondbeliefsobriety.com and click on the donate button or click on the little coffee cup and buy us a cup of coffee. And so thank you again for listening. I really do appreciate it. We'll be back next week with another episode.